Now get started with our subject today. Father, thank you for this day that you've brought us out to your house to study your word, open minds, hearts, help us to understand as we discuss this topic, that we may understand what you would have to teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, sanctification this morning. And um, really, this is a, a lot of what we're going to be doing today is just tying up a bunch of loose ends, because we've been sort of dealing with this all the way through our doctrines classes. Um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talked a little bit about sanctification, because it's the Spirit that is the agent of sanctification. Um, when we talked about sin, we also talked a little bit about sanctification. So really, we're just tying up a bunch of loose ends here. So. It's not going to be really in-depth, but it'll sort of bring a bunch of things together as we look at this topic, sanctification. Before I go on, how many, how many know what sanctification is? What is it? It's when you get like renewed by the Holy Spirit. Okay. To be set apart for God's purpose. To be set apart. Elements of both of those, but the major idea is set apart. Um, actually, the Greek word hagiasthune means to be set apart. You set apart. And the idea of setting apart is that you dedicate something to a particular service. For example, in the Old Testament, the uh, vessels of the temple were sanctified. In what sense were they sanctified? They were only used for that. You didn't go and you know take the holy cups out of the temple and use them for common usage. They were set apart. They were made holy. They were, they were set apart from. And in fact, the idea of underneath sanctification, hagios is the word holy. It is the, um, it is really one of the, the if you remember back in our, when we talked about the um, character of God, this is the major attribute of God, holiness. And in what sense is God holy? He's, he's totally apart from anything. He's, he's set apart from creation. He's set apart from time. He's set apart from sin. He's totally different than what we think him to be. He's holy. And so when we talk about sanctification, what we're talking about is, in our case, us becoming like God. We are becoming holy. We're becoming set apart. All right? We are to be set apart. And that's what the idea of sanctification is when we talk about it. It means to be set apart. All right. When we look at the definition of sanctification, um, we have to ask, what is it? What is this topic? And, and the reason this topic is so important, by the way, is because there's a lot of religious persuasions that confuse sanctification and justification. We're going to look at some of the differences here in a minute. But for example, uh, Catholicism defines justification and sanctification as processes. You're in a process of being justified, which means it's an ongoing kind of thing. And when we talk about justification, if you remember, we said, no, that's a once-for-all act, never to be repeated. Sanctification is the process whereby you are made holy. And that's what we're going to talk about, and that's why this is important to discuss. What is it? It, it is not the eradication of the sin nature. Um, there are some that say, well, when you become... Um, born again, or, or you can actually in your Christian life down here get to the point where you eradicate your sin nature. You don't sin. All right? You don't get there. Now, is it possible to sin less? Yes. Yeah, it is. Hopefully, you're all sinning less today than you did 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Hopefully, the, the, the frequency of sin is decreasing. So, we're not, we're not going to get to the point where it's zero in this life. 
but we can get to the point where we sin less. So it's not the eradication of the sin nature. And I hate to use the word sin nature there. Really what we're talking about is our fallenness. And how, In the New Testament, what is the word used to, that describes that? No, not sin. Our nope. flesh. In fact, that is the New Testament word for this concept, flesh. And that's what Paul uses, by the way, in Romans 7 and Romans 6. It is our flesh that slows us down. What is our flesh? We discussed that in the doctrine of sin. It's our fallenness, our humanness. What causes you to do sinful things? It's your flesh. It's your flesh that's dragging you down. Do you want to sin? As a Christian, do you want to sin? Why do you do it? Because you're flesh. That's what Paul's talking about. We're going to look at that in Romans 6 and 7. So it's not the eradication of the flesh. It's not the eradication of the sin nature. It's not the second blessing. Now some have said, well, sanctification is uh, when you get this uh, divine zap. In some of the charismatic circles you have this where, you know, you become a Christian, you become born again, and then subsequent to that at some point you really, get hit, you really hit the power line. You get this divine whatever. And that, that's, that's sanctification. That's when you really catch on and you really catch fire. Benny Hinn wrote a book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, where it had this basic thesis that you can be saved but really not connected to God. You can really just sort of be struggling and then you get somehow this divine encounter with the Holy Spirit. And then that book sold so well, he did another one called The Anointing where you can go up to a second level of anointing and you, you sort of work your way up. Um, it's not that. Sanctification is not that. It's not the second blessing. All right? It's not the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Some people say, well, sanctification is when you're baptized by the Spirit. And again, in some charismatic circles, you have this, uh, you, you have your salvation and you sort of like struggle and quiver and bumble along. And then you get to the baptism of the Spirit and that's when you really get connected um, the Bible teaches that when you became a Christian, you were baptized by the Spirit. This is not something that you get secondarily. Um, what is the baptism of the Spirit? If you look at it in 1 Corinthians 12, it means that the Holy Spirit takes me and places me into the body of Christ. When does that happen? At salvation. You know, there's no subsequent baptism. There's no subsequent connection. All right? There's no subsequent divine zap that you get that catapults you to another level of spirituality. We'll look, about th we'll look at that in a minute. So what is it? If it's not those things, what is it? Well, if you look at the New Testament, there's about 300 occurrences of this concept of sanctification. About 760 in the Old Testament. So it's really all over the place. And the basic meaning in all of these contexts is to be set apart. You're set apart from something to something. So in the Old Testament, when you had the temple um, vessels, they were set apart to God. They were, they were to be used only for God's service. Uh, the high priest, when they had their, their vestments, they were set apart. They were holy in the sense that they were only used for temple service. When you had the uh, incense that they made, that was holy incense. You didn't make it and go down to your house and you know, burn it in your house. That was set apart to God. So in all cases, sanctification means I am set apart. I am to be separated from something to something. That's what it always means. Separated from sin to righteousness. 
Well, that's, that's a major concept. The root word means to be set apart, and then the context tells you set apart from what? All right? We are to be sanctified from the world in what sense? We're not to be like it, right? We're to be set apart from sin in what sense? We're not to sin. We're not to, to do that. That's, that's not something we are to engage in. So there's a setting. We're set apart to service, right? We're set apart from what we did to God. Paul says he was set apart from his birth to be an apostle. All right? And basically, sanctification, the root concept means to be set apart. Theologically, it means to be set apart. And then in the sense of salvation, it means to become more set apart. Because there's three tenses we'll look at. It. And that's what the second point is. Spiritually, it means to be set apart from sin to God. We are to be sanctified people. We are to be set apart from sin. We're not to engage in it. We're not to live in it. We're to be different. And that carries over into all aspects of our life. In what sense? Well, what do you watch on TV? What, uh, what entertainment do you engage in? Are you going to engage in things that are sinful, that, that tend to um, encourage the flesh? Basically, anything you do to strengthen the flesh is sin, right? Because what is the flesh? You're following us. And by the way, Colossians says you are to mortify the deeds of the body. What does it mean? You're to kill your flesh. Now, how do you kill your flesh? Other than shooting yourself. How, how do you kill your flesh? You walk in the spirit, but what else do you do? You starve it. You starve your flesh. Is the flesh always going to be there? Yep. As long as you're alive down here and you're not a vegetable in a hospital, you're going to struggle with flesh. You're going to have that. That's part of our fallenness. But someday that's going to be removed. But right now, we have the struggle with the flesh. And the way you deal with the flesh is you starve it. And how do you starve it? You focus on things above and you don't feed the lusts of the flesh. You don't feed the sinful desires. You, don't, you watch what you watch. You watch what you read. You watch what you you know, engage in. One of the, I think one of the deadly things in the church today, and I'm talking about the global church, is um, we don't talk much about separation and sin and all that anymore. We, I mean, God is, is seen as our, our friend, our companion, and he is, but there's a lessening um, emphasis on the fact that we need to be separate from the world. We, we are to be in the world, but we're not of it. Last week I said, you know, when boat in the water is good, water in the boat is bad. You know, you and the world, that's the way it is. But when the world gets in you, now that's a bad thing. And we need to separate ourselves from the things of the world. And I know in my own life, over time, I'm, I'm seeing more and more of the separation. I'm seeing more and more, yeah, I, I used to be able to do that, but I can't do that anymore because that's really not what I should be engaging in. I need to stay away from that because it's strengthening the flesh. And that's part of spiritual maturity. That's part of growth. So you starve the flesh. That's the way you defeat it. You're not going to kill it in a sense of eradicating it, but you can starve it and weaken it. But it's always there. And the thing about the flesh is you can't let your guard down because what will happen when you do, it'll get you. It'll get you. So you've got to keep your guard up. When we look at justification and sanctification, there are some major differences. All right? and, and these are important to understand 
because again there are some um, theological systems that confuse the two concepts. Catholicism is just one that confuses the two. But, but there are others that do that as well. All right. When we talk about justification, justification deals with our standing. What does that mean? Our standing. Yeah, our position before God is one of what? Holiness, right? When God sees you, what does he see? Sin? He sees Christ's righteousness, right? Because, because I'm a believer, when God looks at me, he sees Alan Schaefer as holy as Christ is. All right, that's my standing, okay? So as far as the judgment of God is concerned, as far as the eternal punishment is concerned, as far as my position before God is concerned, as Ephesians says, I'm already seated in the heavenly places. It's as, I'm as good as there, okay? Doesn't look like it now, but I'm as good as there. That's my standing. And what justification does is because I am declared righteous, I am, and as far as God is concerned, I am as righteous as Christ is because we talked about the concept of imputation, right? Remember that? What is imputation? God took my sin and credited it to Christ. Mm -hmm. He took Christ's perfect righteousness and credited it to me. And since Christ's perfect righteousness is an infinite righteousness, what kind of righteousness do I have? An infinite. And no matter how bad my sin is, since it is not an infinite sin, Christ can pay the penalty. So I am as righteous. That's my standing. Sanctification, however, deals with my state. What is my state? That's my daily walk, right? Does it go up and down? Yeah, yeah it does. Hopefully it's slowly going what? Up. But it goes up and down. You know, there, there are times you feel close to God, right? Then you have a relapse. And then, and then, and then you, you work through that, and you get a little close, and then you have a relapse. Then you, but hopefully, as time goes on, the bar is going up. All right? You're on the way up. It's the direction. It's not the perfection. None of us are going to hit perfection, unfortunately. But we are, are going to have a direction in our life, a direction towards holiness, a direction towards godliness. So it deals with our state, and that's an important concept to understand. Get those two mixed up. You have a problem because sometimes what people say, well, they get the state mixed up with standing. So if your state is up, down, up, down, what do they think about their place before God? Well, it's up, down, up, down, up, down. Which makes it dependent upon us. Yeah, and that's sort of a miserable way to live, right? If, if God's love for you depends on how, how well you perform, that's misery, isn't it? Because no matter how hard you do or how hard you try... You're always a day late and a dollar short. No matter what you do, you're never going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a saying that I saw somewhere, whether it was a billboard or what, can't remember. But I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day I will be saved from the presence of sin. Yeah, that's a good Awana. Is that Awana? Yeah, that's, I got that from Awana. That's good. Um, justification is I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'll never stand before God and account for my sin. Why? Because Christ did that for me. I am being right now saved from the 
power of sin. In what sense? As I mature in my Christian life, hopefully, the power of sin is becoming less and less. I'm becoming more holy. And someday, in glorification, I will be saved from the presence of sin. In heaven, I, there will not be no sin there. I won't be able to foul it up again. I won't be able to do that. That's a good way to put it. Uh, justification is what God does for us. Justification is an act of God whereby he declares us righteous. I have no real participation in that other than to accept his grace, right? It's something he has to do. But sanctification is what God does in me. Now that I am justified, now that I do belong to him, what is he then going to want to make me? Holy. And that's why, you know, just as a side here, it's nuts for somebody to say, look, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, look, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, good, missing hell, all that good stuff, so I'm not going to really worry too much about my life because after all, I cannot help but sin, and God will forgive me anyways. Alright, there are people that believe that. And if you seriously believe that, you better look back and see if you've been justified in the first place. God did not save you in order for you to do what? Just be yourself. God didn't save you in order for you to just live your own life and do your own thing. God saved you to be holy. That's why he saved you. He saved you to make you like Christ. And he's going to start the process in this life. It's going to work a bit in here. But someday you're going to be like Christ. God did not save you so that you can just go ahead and sin because it doesn't matter anymore because now that you're forgiven, you're on your way to heaven. God saved you to be holy. It does. Yeah, it's, it's antinomianism. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah, that's what it is. God did not save you to just be your same old, same old. God saved you in order to make you holy. Um, justification is an act. What do we mean by that? Happened one time. You were justified. There's a moment in time when you pass from death to life. There's a moment in time when in the ledgers of heaven, Christ's righteousness was imputed to you and your sin was imputed to Christ. That was an act. It was a moment in time. But sanctification is a process. It's a work. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen over time as you become more and more like Christ, as you become more and more holy and less and less sinful in the sense of committing acts of sin. It's a process. Justification is the means. Sanctification is the end. What do you mean by that? You can't be sanctified without being justified. Now, there are some religious persuasions that say, well, you can work on being sanctified. In other words, you can work on being holy, and God will sort of accept you, you know, if you're working really hard at it, and you're sincere, and you're okay. Well, look, if you don't come in, and I, if you never read Pilgrim's Progress, you really need to read that book. Because if you don't come in at the wicked gate, you're, even though you're supposedly on the path, you're not going to make it to the celestial city. How many, how many people have read that book? You really need to read it. It's a great book. But there are people that, that say, well, I'm, I'm on the path to heaven, but they don't come in through the cross. They don't come by way of the cross. And there's a lot of cults that, that say, well, we can, we, we're going to work on being holy. We're going to work on being good people. And in the end, God will he'll, he'll accept us because you know, we're, we're working hard at it. We're sincere. If, you don't, if you're not justified... Nothing's going to work. You, that, that's the starting point. 
Justification makes us safe. Sanctification makes us sound. The idea there is justification um, takes care of the penalty of sin, but sanctification makes me sound in the sense of right, in the sense of healthy. It's the process. Justification declares us good. What does it mean? When I am justified, God says, you are righteous as Christ. Now, am I at that point literally as righteous as Christ in my life? No, not yet. But I'm declared righteous before God. I'm, de I'm declared free from sin. Sanctification is what makes me righteous. It's a process. I'm being made like Christ. I'm being conformed to the image of his son over time. Yeah. Bad things in my life. And then uh, over the last couple months, I've just come to see that it's more just my relationship with God as I get to know God. Instead of just focused on these bad things, as I develop my relationship with God and, and know Him better and, and studying my Bible and stuff, I just don't want to do the things. Right. And it's not that, it, you know, what I was doing before, it was always just, I'm not doing well, oh my gosh, maybe I'm really not saying because I was failing at it. Mm -hmm. Right. And see, that's the key. Right there. You, you've, you've hit really this key to the whole sanctification process. If you don't get anything, get that. All right? If you, don't, if you forget everything else I've said, get that. Because if you focus on your relationship with Christ, what's going to happen to sin? You're not going to want to do it. You know, you're not going to sit there and say, okay, what's the list today that I've got to do, right? What's the list today? You know? And, and you know, it's, it's just like my relationship with my friend. I mean, you know, Ruth is my closest friend I have. And, and you know, we, we don't sit there and go, well, this hurt me, this, this, you know. As we become closer friends, I know her better and I don't want to offend her. Right. And it's the same thing. Same thing with Donna, right? I don't have any laws at home saying I'm not allowed to beat her up. <laughs> All right? Because she'd beat me up back, probably, you know. <laughs> But I love her. I mean, I love my wife. And because I love her, I don't need a list. And as our relationship grows, I understand her more and more. And I understand what really rankles her. And I, I want to stay away from those things. You know? And that's the way it is with Christ. And that's the way it is with, with, with God. As you, as you focus... Yeah. Now, early on in your Christian life, there is a place for the rules, isn't there? There's a place for those. Because you're not yet... You don't have that relationship yet fully established. So it's, early on, it's good to have a set of rules. Like, you know, I shouldn't do that. That's not a good thing to do. But then as time goes on, what, what was a rule now becomes a principle of your life. It's the same thing with your kids. You know, early on, we've talked about this. When your kids are little, they have rules. They have bedtimes. They have things they got to do. But hopefully, by the time they're 21 and 22, they don't have bedtimes. Why? Because they're grown up. They're responsible. They hopefully they're responsible. They it's a relationship. So so there's a growth, and that's the way it is in the Christian life. A lot of sanctification, and that that's you know I, I used to be in that spot where you know well what is sin? Sin is a whole big list of things that I got to keep track of. You know I got this massive list of things that I got to check off every day and make sure I don't do it because if I don't do it, it's sin. Like oh if I don't pray at noon, that's a sinful thing. I got, I got you know, a little black mark. 
you know, if I don't do this at this time, it's a sin. Well, that's a Pharisee. You know, that, that, that's an onerous kind of thing. You don't need to go there. If you focus on your love for God, all this stuff will be, can't begin to take care of itself because you're going to want to do that. And God's going to put the desires in your heart. And you're not going to need a list. You're not going to need necessarily a list of rules and regulations because you're going to know what God wants you to do. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification checks the growth and power of sin. As you are sanctified, the, hopefully the power of sin is diminishing in your life and you are growing spiritually in your relationship with God. It's a growth thing. And as you grow closer to the Lord, those things that you used to do or enjoy doing, they just lose their attraction. You no longer care for them. They have no draw for you. Yes. Justification furnishes the track which leads to heaven. I, I got this from some guy. Sanctification furnishes the train. Justification gives you the where you need to go, and sanctification helps you make your way along that track. Makes, helps you on your way to heaven. Now, as we look at sanctification, there's all kinds of views of this. And I've, I've just really boiled this down. This, there, we could spend weeks and weeks talking about this. We don't need to do that. But you can look at different religious persuasions, and there's all kinds of views of sanctification. The first one we're going to call, what we have here is antinomianism. What does that come from? Anti against, nomos law, against law. What's an antinomian? Without law. What does it mean to be without law? Yeah, lawlessness. I mean, sanctification, look, you know, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm going to be in heaven. So I don't need to worry about whether I commit an act of sin or not because it doesn't matter. After all, I'm saved. There's a, um, a real uh, streak of this in the Corinthian church. And there's one passage where Paul says, you know, you have this saying, food for the belly and the belly for food. The idea there is, look, you know, the, the physical body, it's what it is. Look, my physical body is passion, has all these sinful passions, all the sinful desires, and God's going to destroy it anyway, so what does it matter whether it does what it does? And there are people that actually believe this. It doesn't matter whether I commit sexual immorality. After all, I'm going to heaven, so it doesn't matter what I do with the body because it's going to be destroyed anyway someday, and... It doesn't matter whether I have this sin or I, I, am, I, I do this or that or the other thing. It, it, after all, God saved me. It doesn't matter. They don't even go beyond themselves, though, either. No. That kind of thing. And, and realize how many other people down with them. No, that doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and it's lawlessness. And, and we live... Right. We live in an age of antinomianism. This was really brought home to me when I was out in um, California one time. And, and uh, I remember uh, we were at some friends of ours, the Schmitz out there, and he said, hey, you've got to see this guy on TV, and he pulls up the TV show, and there's this guy, he's sort of a big guy, he, has a, he had a big beard, and he had, a, he had a big, long, stogie cigar, and he had an ashtray on the pulpit, and he would be preaching while he's smoking this massive stogie, and he'd talk about liberty in Christ, and you have the liberty to do anything you want to do, because after all, you're saved. It doesn't matter what you do. So sin all the more. Yeah, and uh, he's dead now. Um, but the whole point is, look, God saved you to be holy. This is serious stuff. 
And you show me someone who, who says, it doesn't matter whether I sin or not because God will forgive me anyways. You really, they ought to go back and look at, do I have a connection? That's like, that's like getting married to someone and saying, well, it doesn't matter how I treat her. It doesn't matter what I say to her. And it doesn't matter why I have 25 other girlfriends because she loves me anyway. She'll forgive me. She'll shoot you. That's right. And if you're in sin and you don't feel miserable and guilty, what does that mean? You don't have a connection. Don't fool yourself. Don't kid yourself. And, and some people who are really Christians sort of buy into this a little bit. I remember talking to a friend of mine who had a lot of serious issues and tendencies in his life. And I, I, I took him out to dinner one time. And I, I talked to him. I said, I just don't understand why you keep doing these things. You know they're wrong. Why do you keep doing it? And his attitude was, well, you know, God's not done with me yet. And who are you to judge me? And why are you telling me that I have to do this? And you're just not patient for God's work in me and blah, 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 blah. And what it showed me is that, you know, he's really not serious about dealing with it. That's like saying, you know, you're an alcoholic. You really need to cut down on your booze. Say, okay, I, instead of drinking 24 bottles of beer a day, I'll go down to 23 because God's not done with me yet. And I'll just, really? Or instead of smoking 40 cigarettes a day, I'll do 39. And God's not done with me yet. You're just going to need to wait and be patient. And I mean, there's a sense in which that is true. But when there's a flippancy about dealing with sin in your life, you've got to ask yourself, wait a minute. What's going on here? There may not be a connection. There's another persuasion called quietism. This has been seen in a lot of the Quaker type of persuasions. Let go and let God. You ever hear that? Let go, let God. You know, so let go and let God do it, you know. And, and one of the difficulties with this is there's an element of truth in, the, in this. There's an element in which you have to let God do his work in you, right? But there's a part of you to need, there's a part you need to play as well. And, and that's sort of where my friend was coming from. He was sort of coming from this quietist persuasion. Well, you know, God's going to sanctify me in God's own good time. And who are you to tell me that I have to go faster along this process because God's going to take whatever time God's going to take to do whatever God's going to do. There's a, and people who are in this are, they're sort of a, you know, they lack focus. You know, they just sort of like, uh, I don't know, just sort of lollygag through their spiritual life and they don't get serious. And after all, God's doing a work in me. It's going to take a while, and I'm not going to get too excited, you know, along the way. Now, again, there, there's an element of truth in which God is doing the work, but you need to, you need to take a part in this as well. So aren't you presuming on God to hold up the relationship, and right. therefore you have really no accountability for the Right, right. You're, you're saying God's going to make me holy when God feels like making me holy, and I'm not going to get too excited about it along the way. You're not, you're not antinomian, but you're just sort of letting God take his time in doing whatever God's going to do. Then there's the pietism. This is seen in a lot of the Puritan persuasions. And what does that mean? Well, you roll up your sleeves and you have at it. It's, it's you. You have to work at this thing. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you've got to put forth maximal effort. And you've got to do this and do that. And you've got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and pray and read your Bible for two hours before you go off to work and you, if, you don't, if you don't put forth this effort, you're, you're, you're sinning. 
Well, is there there an element of truth to that? There's an element of truth in that there is activity you need to do. But all the activity that you do in the world is not going to make you holy without God's help. Yeah. No, no, this is not John Wesley Pietism. No, that's a good question. That's not, that's not what this is. Pietism and Pietism seem to be an opposite. They are. They're opposite. Passive aggressive. Yeah, passive aggressive. And, and where you need to come in is in the middle. Is there a place for Christian piety? Absolutely there is. There is. Yeah, there's a sense in which God has given us certain commands to do, and he expects us to, to do them. Yeah. 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 These are two opposites. All right. And where the truth lies is in the middle. There's a sense in which I need to let go and let God do his work. God is working in me. Philippians 2, God is working in me, both to will and to do of his good favor. God is working in me to give me the will. That's the quietism connection piece of it. But then I am to do his will. And there is a place for Christian piety. There is that place. It needs to be put into perspective but there's a place for pietism in the sense of, I have to do something. Um, I can't go to bed at night, put my Bible under my pillow, and expect to learn something by osmosis. Right? I've got to read the thing. I've got to study the thing. I've got to be in it. And if I am in it, what is God doing? God is taking what I'm reading, and he's doing the work of making it apply in my life. But I have a part to play in this thing. So well, both of them are true. Well, yeah, God calls you to do a good work, do jo- good job at your at your place of employment, but that's part of worship to honor Him. All right, what we're talking about here are extremes. Okay, there are extremes on either side. Um, there's also the charismatic view. The charismatic view is that you get a divine zap that catapults you to a new level of spirituality. Um, usually it's uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so supposedly in speaking in tongues or whatever. We, also, we talked a, little, a lot about this back in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But th- there are people that say, well, I'm just waiting for God to zap me. I'm going to get catapulted up to a new level of connectedness to God. And then I'll get another zap along the way and I'll get connected up higher. And, um, no, there, there's no zap in the Bible. There's no divine zap. Now, can you at, at a point in time become, I want to use the word rededicated, renewed, have a renewed commitment? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, this, but people who wait around for the divine zap to catapult them to a new level of spirituality are waiting in vain for something that's not there. Yeah. I see charismatic as mania. 
Yeah. This is, this is the psychologist speaking over here, you know. But yeah, yeah. And then there's the pragmatic approach. Um, I've been exposed to this in my life. What's the pragmatic approach? Uh, there's a secret to this, and you just got to find the technique. There's a technique to being holy. There's a technique to this. And the technique is you got to get up at 5 o'clock and read your Bible for two hours. I remember being told that. Well, I'm not cognizant at 5 o'clock. You know, getting up at 5 o'clock and reading the Bible is just not going to work it for me. Um, and and you've got to pray for at least two hours a day, preferably in the morning before you do this. And one, Bible, one guy said, well, I have this, this uh, thing in my life, no Bible, no breakfast. If I, don't eat my, if I don't read my Bible, I can't eat breakfast. Well, if you've got a little bit of blood sugar issues, you're going to have really a disastrous day on that if you miss it. Um, but, but there's, and by the way, this, this here is something that is really... Um, invaded the church in subtle ways. There's a technique. There, there, there's, a, there's some kind of way that you can find some secret um, I want to technique. Pat, yeah, uh, if, you, if you study your Bible this certain way, if you pray this long, if you, if you attend these particular sessions, uh, if, if you practice these certain things, it's sort of like a I don't want to call it, but it's a voodoo approach to this. You know, if you just get the right incantation or the right technique, you can make it. Um, there's a pragmatic approach. Now, is there an element of pragmatism in our sanctification? There's an element of it, isn't there? You do have to read your Bible. You do have to study your Bible. You do have to pray. But there's no secret. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like fad. I want to call pragmatism here fadism. You know, what do you have? You have dietary fads. You know, you have all of these. You know, you have another fad today which tells you, you know, if you eat this, eat that, eat that, you can eat anything else and you'll still get skinny. You know, it's fads. Um, no, there, there is no supremely pragmatic approach because it is a work of the Spirit in your heart. Right. Well, just so you feel better, I have a confession to make. I don't read my Bible every single day. I don't. Donna does. Donna reads her Bible every single day. Don't you? You read your Bible every day. Usually when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm getting ready for work. She's at the table reading it and the black cat is sitting right next to her there. Um, he's getting, I guess, a dose of spirituality there too. Kisley. Yeah, she'll sit there while she's reading her Bible. But, but... Am I, am I contemplating spiritual things every day? Yeah. Am I meditating on the word every day? Yes. Am I engaged in prayer every day? Yes. But I don't read my Bible every single day. Because if I, and it may, you know, it's, it's not whether, oh, Alan, you're sinning. You're, you're, that's sinful to you to do that. You, 
how dare you, you know, not do... Well, wait a minute, if I love God and I'm, I'm contemplating his word and I've memorized thousands of verses so I, know, I have the word up here and I'm thinking about it, that, that's, that's legalism. That's, that's this thing here. We fall into this legalistic trap. The question is, what is your relationship with God? And that takes many forms, it takes many different ways, and for some people it is reading your Bible every day. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you miss a day, the fire of God is not going to fall and consume you. All right? Yeah, my um, uncle said he'd go to church even if the house burned down. Yeah, she had an uncle said, I'm going to be in church every time the door's open, even if the house is burning down and my wife is dying in the in the in the house, I'm going to be in church. You know, it's, all right, is it important to be in church? My God, I church. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> come on, you know, there's there. That doesn't make any sense, you know. Um, there's the psychological approach. What does that mean? This this has really taken over the church a lot of times. Well, it's 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 working through your psychological hang-ups that that's going to help you with sanctification. You got to go back in the past. You got to dig through. You know, your mom made you eat lima beans, and because of that, you know, you've got this developed this psychosis. And look, I, I'm joking. You know, and Sammy knows that you know a little bit. But but there are there are people that believe that I, I have to find some. I have to dig through the past and get rid of all my psychological issues. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what has happened? And I could get on this for the next time, and we're not getting into the text. But the psychological has really taken over in the sense that um, pastors have even said, "Well, you know, I deal with the spiritual aspect, um, but if you've got some." you know, really deep psychological issue. I can't help you. The Holy Spirit is powerless. We're going to have to send you off to the psychologist. Now, wait a minute. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, hasn't he? All right. Now, does the Bible address every single psychological issue? Well, yeah, yes and no. No in the sense that it does not spell out the psychological issue because they keep coming. They come and go, right? You got new ones every day and old ones go away. But it does deal with the issues. What you're basically saying is the Holy Spirit is incapable of sanctifying you if you have a certain psychological issue. The Holy Spirit is incapable of doing anything. Are you going to say that? Are you going to say that God is unable to fix you? Now, again, we're talking, when it comes to physiological issues, yes. There, there, you know, there are some physiological, psychological issues that people have. Where, where there is a need for medical attention. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill stuff in your life. And I've seen it, I've been, I've been a Christian long enough to see that one thing come and go, ebb and flow, up and down. And look, it's not a psychological thing. It's being in the Word and letting the Holy Spirit do His work. Yeah, you're going to... Right. I had to get to the point of forgiveness and letting go of it. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing that's biblical. That is something that they never would have done anyway. 
Oh, no, because you don't have such a thing as guilt. Yeah. And what has the Holy Spirit been able to do since then? Yeah. You're a different person. Yeah. Again, there, there, there's, the problem is some of this, there's always a little element, a little germ of, of truthfulness. It only works yeah. if the psychologist is also a Christian who yeah. knows his or her scripture, who incorporates it within right. the process. And the problem is secular psychologists don't do that because the last thing they want to tell you about is guilt and sin. You know, there is no such thing as sin in their concept. So if you're not a sinner, you, you, they can't help you. I mean, they may be able to do some behavioral modification and give you some meds, but they're not going to ultimately help you. All right? Legalism is another one. What's that? Well, I have a whole list of things that i got to do, and that's what makes me spiritual. I grew up with that. Don't drink, smoke, chew, go with girls who do. Um, you know, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to dress worldly. I mean, and the list went on and on and on, and no matter where you went, there were more things added to the list. There's always a, there's always a place where there's a list. Now, no lipstick. Yeah, no makeup, no lipstick. Women are not allowed to cut their hair. I mean, come on, all right? Now, is there an element, is there an element of this in our sanctification? Yeah, because God has given us certain commands. You do those. You protect us. But, but that is not what defines us as being holy. And, and what happens is usually what I found, when you go down the legalistic route, whatever list you come up with is a list you can pretty much keep. You're not going to come up with a list you absolutely cannot keep. Because that's, that's sort of, you know, frustrating. So you come up with a list you can keep. It's not legalism. And it's not... This thing here, Gnosticism, there, there's an element of that that creeps in a little bit into the church. And the idea of Gnosticism is there's some kind of secret knowledge that you find. There's some kind of, of, of secret thing that God will reveal to you someday and all, it'll catapult you to another level of spiritual maturity. This really took over in the church, the early church, where you had this kind of um, secret hidden knowledge that only a few people knew and you needed to get in on the ground floor and get this secret knowledge and that gave you a certain connection to God that the average run-of-the-mill riffraff didn't have. A lot of cults are buy into this, secret knowledge. None of this is what the Bible talks about. All right, sanctification is not any of this. So that'd be Mormonism. Yeah, Mormonism is somewhat like that. Now, when you look at sanctification, there are three temporal tenses to it. What do we mean by that? When you, when you look at, at this concept, um, there are three ways in which it's been applicable in our life. There's a past aspect. We have been sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified to set apart? When did that happen? When were you set apart to God? Salvation. You have been sanctified. All of you in here have been sanctified. In the sense that, at a point in time when you were justified, you were set apart to God. That is a, an act. That is not a repeatable act. It's a once-for-all act. It's, you have been sanctified. Now that you have been set apart to God, what is God doing? He is sanctifying you by the process, by spiritual maturity. So you are being sanctified as you learn to grow in your spiritual life, as you learn to be more like God, as your relationship with God deepens, you become more holy, you become more sanctified. That is a process. 
And then someday, ultimately, you will be forever sanctified. What does that mean? You will be forever set apart to God at the time of glorification. You will be set apart. And, and sort of what Sammy said, this is from the penalty, this is from the power, this is from the present, presence. So there's a temporal aspect to sanctification. Usually when we talk about sanctification, we're really keying in on this middle one here. The process whereby we are being sanctified or set apart to God. So how do you achieve this? How is it that you become sanctified? Alright, well let's look at Romans 6. Because that's really the chapter that deals with this. And I'm going to have to fly through this or I'll get thrown out by the class that's coming after us. I really like to do Romans 6 and 7, but I can't. So let's just look at Romans 6. In Romans chapter 5, what has Paul done? Paul has said, you are identified with one of two men. Adam the first or Adam the second. Um, by virtue of your existence, by virtue of you being a human being, you are identified with Adam the first. Adam the first is death, sin, bondage. Through the new birth, you are identified with Adam the second, Christ, who is the second Adam. What does the second Adam do? He overcomes the power of sin. And just as death reigned in Adam, even so life reigns in Christ. We have been moved from death to life. And that's what Romans 5 is talking about. Then in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, Paul asks the questions, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's the question. Now that I'm sanctified, now that I'm, just, I'm, excuse me, now that I'm justified, should I continue to sin so that God's grace could be evidenced? How is God's grace evidenced in my sin? When he does what? Forgives me. So I'm going to make God look good. You know how I'm going to make God look good? I'm going to go sin it up, and then when he forgives me, it'll show how gracious he is. That's the antinomian crowd, right? By no means. No way. Don't, don't continue in sin. Why? Why is it that you're not to continue in sin? The idea of continuing in sin there is to continue in acts of sin, to, to have that as your lifestyle. Now, understand what Paul's talking about. He's talking about your lifestyle. He's not talking about an act now and then. We all have to deal with that. But he's saying if the characteristic... Um, uh, direction of your life is sinfulness and, and, and rebellion and evil, that, that's incompatible with your identification with Christ. It's, it's incompatible with that. How can you who died to sin still live in it? In what sense did you die to sin? Spiritually, Spiritually we died. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Uh, no water here, folks, for all your Baptists in here. This is not a, there's no water baptism. It's not talking about water baptism here. What kind of baptism is it talking about? Spiritual, Spiritual baptism. And the idea there is identification. I am identified, I used to be identified with who? The first Adam, right? Now I'm identified with the second Adam, Christ. All right? Now, follow what he's saying here. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. Paul is saying this. This is the 20,000-foot view. Craig, you know, cliff note view. I'm identified with Christ, so when Christ died, I died. 
When Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ rose again, I rose with him. Alright? Now, since I died and the penalty of sin is death, has the penalty been satisfied in my case? Yeah, spiritually I died, right? So now that I'm risen again, does death have any more hold over me? Why? I've been identified with Christ. The power of sin is broken. I don't have to do that. You follow what Paul is getting at here? Follow what he's saying? It, it, the process starts with me knowing that I am dead to sin. That's where the process starts. I have to know. In fact, there are three key words in, in Romans 6. Know, reckon, and yield. You've got to know some things. And because you know some things, then you reckon them. What does that mean? That you are come to a firm conclusion about something. And then that causes you to do what? To yield. Okay? Let's follow this. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. So the idea is I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, I rose again with Christ, and because of that I can walk in newness of life because the penalty of sin has been satisfied, the power of sin is broken. And this is the idea, can, can, can a dead person sin? No. You're dead in Christ. And it's talking about the eternal concept. You've got to follow what he's saying here. It's not talking about the Acts. That comes in, Acts, in chapter 7. But he's saying, when, when it comes to the penalty of sin, I've satisfied it in the sense that I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I'm risen again with Christ. Then it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Very important verse. This is, let me, this is what he's saying here. I was crucified with Christ so that my old self was crucified. What is my old self in the context of Romans 5 and 6? My identification with? The flesh. No, it's not the flesh. My identification with the first Adam. That's my old self. Alright, so when I came to know the Lord, my old self, my old identification with Adam the first was crucified with him. Whom I I identified with now? Christ. Okay? And because my identification with that old Adam has been broken, I am no longer identified with that Adam. I'm identified with the second Adam. So that what? The body of sin might be destroyed. What's that? My flesh. When it says it might be destroyed, then it's once again emphasizing process. It's a process. Now you got it. Okay? This is what he's saying. Okay? How are you a sinner? You're a sinner in three ways. One, you're identified with Adam, right? We call that original sin. At the moment of your conception, God imputed the guilt of Adam to you because you're a human being. You said that's not fair. Well, that's the way it is. All right? Secondly, you are a sinner because you have inherited from your parents what? Pollution, flesh, the propensity to sin. And you are a sinner because you commit acts of sin, aren't you? Because of the first two, you do things that are wrong. So how did God take care of it? Well, he took care of my identification with Adam by making me identified with who? Christ. So that's been broken. That's been shattered. That's no longer there. Now what is he doing with my flesh? I am being sanctified. So the flesh is dying, but it's not dead yet, but it's dying. And what's going to happen someday? 
I'm going to get rid of that. And I get a new body that's new, a new um, glorified body that's no longer subject to sin. And what has he done with all my acts of sin? They've been washed away. They've been expunged from the record. So we're getting washed. You're getting thoroughly washed. All right? You're getting thoroughly washed. All right? And it says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does it mean to be brought to nothing? The power to be removed. See, here's the point. An unbeliever cannot help but sin because they're in the flesh. You're a believer. You can. Because you have Christ in you. You don't have... The power of sin has been broken in your life. When you sin, you don't have to do that. You do it because you, you follow the flaw in flesh, but you don't have to. It goes from I can to I won't. Yeah. So that we should no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. What's the idea of being enslaved to sin? To be brought under its power. For one who has died has been freed from sin. Axiomatic truth. If you're dead, you can't sin. And I am dead in the sense that I'm identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has, no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What's the penalty of sin? You die. Did I die? In Christ I did, didn't I? So that, so... As far as the power of sin goes, as far as the penalty of sin goes, I've paid it in full. So now that I'm walking in newness of life, does that old penalty have anything over me? No. 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 It happened in the Old West, right? When you hung somebody and the rope broke, what happened? They died. No, they didn't die. If the rope broke... No. No, they let them go. They let them go. Well... The idea in the law was, you know, double jeopardy, you know. If you execute a criminal, he's declared dead, and he gets up 30 minutes later, right? Penalty has been paid. Yeah. Um, and what's, what it's saying here is that I paid the penalty in the sense that I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I rose again with him. And then it says here, so you must also reckon. That's the good word there, reckon. You know that you died with Christ. Now what do you need to do? You need to bring that into action in your life. Now you need to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The power of sin is broken. You don't have to sin. So now because of that, what are you supposed to do? Verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. Why is that? It doesn't have to reign. If you're an unbeliever, it can't help but reign. But now you don't have to do that. Do not present yourselves, your members, as sins, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead to life, and your members to God as instruments for, of righteousness. What are you supposed to do now with your body? It's talking about your body there. It's talking about your, your physical self. What do you do? You, you devote it to God. You don't have to devote it to sin now. The power of sin is broken. Of course it is. But you need, you need to make a start. For sin will not have no more dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. In what sense am I not under law? By love. No. What was the penalty of the law? Yes. I died. Therefore, I'm no longer under the law. I am under grace. grace. That does not mean, 
as some people said, look, you know, now I don't have to do anything. The law says I can just go sin and have at it. That's what Paul's talking about here. You're not allowed to, allowed to do that. You're not, you don't want to go there. And then he asked the question, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Now, now, now that the penalty has been broken, you know, now that, now sort of in a sense that the penalty of sin has been paid for in your life, does that then let you now to go on and sin because you're now under grace? Absolutely. And you don't have to worry about it anymore? Well, no. Don't you know that to who you present yourselves to, at, to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Axiomatic truth. Who do you submit yourself to? Your master, right? Axiomatic truth. And how do you know who your master is? Well, who are you obeying? God. If you're obeying sin, who's your master? Sin. sin. If you're obeying Christ, who's your master? Christ. Since the power of sin is broken, whom are you to obey? Christ. But thanks be to God, listen, this is important, that you were once slaves of sin and become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set apart, sanctified from sin you become slaves of righteousness as a believer, what are you a slave to now? Righteousness, righteousness not sin you're not a slave to sin, now Romans 7 and we can't get to that today in Romans 7 Paul talks about, well what about the struggle that I have with the flesh why do I keep falling into this thing what Paul is talking about here now is, the, is this understanding that you are a slave to Christ. You are no longer bound to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. The power of sin has been shattered in your life. You're not under it. And so, when the first step in sanctification is to understand, I don't have to do it. I have a choice. And how do I, how do, I do it then? Well, I yield myself to who? To God. I yield myself to, to him. He, he is my master now. I don't have to listen to the old master. I don't have to do what the old master is telling me to do. I've got a new one now. And I'm able now for the first time in my life to love God. And that says here, I speak, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members, what's that, your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just like you used to present your body and yourself to the slave of sin, now present it to God. Then says here, for you, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What does that mean? When I was a slave to sin, I was freed from the master of righteousness, right? Because I was a slave to the sin. But now that I'm freed from the slave, the, the mastery of sin, what am I free to do? To obey righteousness and I'm no longer under the mastery of sin. The point is this, you're mastered by one or the other. Either you're the God or he's the God. You're, you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. As a believer, you're no longer a slave to righteousness. Why? For the wages of sin is death. And therefore you have a truly a free will in the sense that you can choose the right things for the first time. Yeah. This is not an easy thing you're saying. No, it isn't. And that's what Paul's going to argue in Romans 7 that we can't get to today. And probably what we should do, really I was going to do glorification next week, but really we should do 7. Because that's really piggybacks on the back of this here.
and what it means to, the, to have the struggle with sin. But the point is this, folks. You don't have to sin. No. The power of sin is broken. You can be holy. And how's that done? It's done through the identification with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I am no longer bound to my old master. I have a new one. And now I just need to live towards the new one. And I do that by yielding myself on a daily basis. I yield myself to my new master. And that is a process. Practice makes better. Yes. So we're out of time. But we'll pick these thoughts up next week. Because it's important. Seven. seven next week. Okay. Father, thank you for this day and for granting us the opportunity to study your word. Help us to remember and ponder these truths in Christ's name. Amen.